For many Christians, Palm Sunday, often referred to as Passion Sunday, marks the beginning of Holy Week, which concludes with Easter Sunday. The celebration of Palm Sunday has always been a paradoxical moment in the life of the church. Symbolically, the palm branch represented victory, triumph, and peace. But the cries of the people in the Palm Sunday Jesus Parade missed the distinct kind of victory and peace which Jesus alone would bring. Namely, peace with God through the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Him. Luke's recording of the Jesus Parade is found in Luke 19, verses 36 and following. It says, As He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now I want you to think about this in terms of the big picture. This may not seem like much of an event. One man on a donkey. Yes, people waving at branches and paving the road with their cloaks. But in Jerusalem at that time, because of it being Passover week, it's estimated that there would have been over a million people. This is one man riding on a donkey. However, in Jesus' day, it was a display that was recognized as a political statement. That's right. It would have been seen as an event to honor a winner and to celebrate a triumphant king. And little did most of the people realize that when they proclaimed the words, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they were actually fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah in 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as He, humble and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Now some, however, might be asking, why the donkey and not a white horse? You see, I'm sure that was the question many of the Jews at the time of Christ had because they recognized this passage in Zechariah as a prophecy concerning the Messiah. But their thoughts about the Messiah was that he was going to be someone who took a hold of the political situation and kicked Rome out. And they would be able to be in control of their own little area of the country. In fact, the way, fact that the crowds reacted the way they did is further proof. In Matthew's parallel account to Luke, and Matthew seems to be more concerned about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy than any of the other gospel writers. Matthew writes, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to 
the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Son of David. That would have got their attention. The donkey already had connotations that Zechariah and his original hearers would have understood. It identified Jesus with Davidic kingship. When David ordered his son Solomon to be anointed as his successor, his specific orders, 1 Kings chapter 1, his specific orders were, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. So the crowds knew that the writer of Zechariah 9 was connected with David. Also, historically speaking, though a king would ride a white horse in times of war, when he came in peace, he would ride a donkey. And that further reinforces the sense of Zechariah 9.10, the next verse, when we're told that the rider shall speak peace to the nations. But going back to Luke. Luke alone records an important part of the journey. We're not told that Jesus was waving as a victorious king, but that he was weeping. As Jesus came to the end of the parade, and as he looked out over Jerusalem, we read Jesus' reaction in Luke 19, 41-44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they did not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that day took place less than 40 years later in 70 AD. Jesus wept over the city. You know, in our society, if you were honored in a parade, why, you would be expected to wave to the crowd with a slow motion, nod your head, but Jesus responds with quite a surprising response. One of only two times in Scripture that we're told that Jesus wept. And the word for wept here, it doesn't mean he was weeping and wiping the tears from his eyes. It's a word that meant wailing as if a mourner. Not the gift of honor at a parade victory. He was waving, not weeping. Why? Because Jesus knew the true theme of the parade. He had not come as the conquering Messiah that they had hoped for. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah 52.13 to 53.13. You see, we do need to know about Zechariah. 
about Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. And though Jesus knew what was ahead, He wasn't grieving the loss of His own life. It wasn't anticipatory grief on the account of the pain and the agony that He was going to experience and the rejection. No, Jesus knew. Jesus saw the bigger picture. He's grieving the loss of lives. The loss of the hearts of the people because they and we century later would reject Him as the Messiah, the Savior, the King sent from God. You know, we seem to have a limited understanding of kingship when we think of Jesus. They did, for sure. They certainly didn't accept the fact that Jesus had come to be the Prince of Peace, the one who had come to sovereignly die for the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus wailed because He was God's gift to humankind, the Son of God, coming first of all to Israel, God's chosen people. And before the week would end, some of these same people would be crying out, crucify Him. Crucify Him. So here's the image for us to consider this morning. Jesus knew that the road He was traveling led to sacrifice. In fact, as they were traveling to Jerusalem, He had taken the twelve aside and told them, we're told for the third time, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they'll condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. And now, with what we know as the triumphal entry, Jesus knew He was arriving at His destination on the sacrificial road. Now, you might be thinking, how in the world was He going to get Palm Sunday into the book of Romans? Paul also knew about the sacrificial road. His encounter with the Lord on the Damascus road had transformed his life from persecuted or persecutor to persecuted. The new direction of his earthly life would, according to Tertullian, according to John Chrysostom, early church fathers, lead to his beheading outside of Rome. His call was don't be conformed to the world around you, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. You see, he understood that this transformation would result in a cross-shaped, a cruciform life characterized by agape love, sacrificial love. And in our text today, he begins to share just what direction our lives should take. Now, it might sound like random thoughts, but I want you to think about these verses as a, a guide for sacrificial love. Romans chapter 9, first of all, just to verse 16a. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. The road that Paul is now guiding us down is one familiar to him. Here in Romans 12, he's following the same basic map that he followed in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. He moves from the fact that we are the body of Christ, verses 4 and 5, to the diversity of the ministry that we have within, verses 6 and 8, to what we're looking at this morning. The absolute and overriding requirement of love. Without a doubt, sacrificial agape love now dominates the scene. So far in Romans, all of the references to agape love have been to the love of God. Poured into our hearts, chapter 5 verse 5. Demonstrated on the cross, chapter 5 verse 8 and doggedly refusing to let us go. Chapter 8, verse 35 and 39. But now Paul focuses on how sacrificial agape love is the essence of Christian discipleship and the markers identifying the pathway of true Christian living. Now many readers see in these verses 9 to 16, like I said, only a hodgepodge of miscellaneous instructions, a series of commands with little or no connection with each other. But in fact, each of these imperatives adds another road marker, another guide as to what traveling on the sacrificial path of love looks like. Twelve components that make up a comprehensive guide. A picture of the sacrificial lifestyle guided by Christian love. It involves entering into the community portraying the humility of riding on the donkey instead of the white stallion. And I would dare say that there are a lot more, especially television evangelists who are more on white horses than on donkeys of humility. It's a parade guided by a love. A love that is sincere. It's discerning. It's affectionate and respectful. It's both enthusiastic and patient. It's both generous and hospitable. Both benevolent and sympathetic. And interestingly, it's marked by harmony and humility. Now, don't you think that we as a community that are traveling the streets of Brook, don't you think that we as a church would be a happier community if we actually all loved one another like that? 
John Stott in his commentary on Romans said that when we are moved by the mercies of God and when our minds have been renewed to grasp His will, all of our relationships should be transformed. You see, not only do we offer our bodies to God, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, not only do we develop a sober image, verses 3 to 8, but as we've just seen in verses 9 to 16, we're to be loving one another in Christian community. I say it again, and I mean it wholeheartedly. The New Testament does not teach a Christianity apart from the community of the church. People who are claiming to be Christian, who are never in fellowship with a body of believers worshiping, are dishonoring the name of what it means to be a part of the ecclesia, the church, the body of Christ. But now also, verses 17 to 21, we're going to see that it means serving our enemies. Back in verse 14, and now in the last verses of Romans 12, 17 to 21, Paul demonstrates how Christians should respond to evildoers. Good and evil are contrasted throughout the whole context. So let's read on. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. David was just sharing with me on Friday that in China, one of the problems they're having is they'll get a whole group of people together and they'll get a lot of people who are being converted, but the caste system is still very much in control. And they won't cross those lines to talk to people of a different caste. In Myanmar, Paul has shared that same problem that no matter how much work he and they do with the Kuki tribe, they can't seem to cross the barrier to, to, to reach out to the other tribes in Myanmar. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What's that, what's that mean? It means that there are some people we're not going to be able to live with. Not because we're not trying, but because they're not willing. <coughs> Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Possibly the most striking feature of this final paragraph, if we add verse 14, which anticipated it, is that it contains four resounding negative imperatives. Do not curse, verse 14. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, verse 17. 
Don't take revenge, verse 19. And do not become overcome by evil, verse 21. And all four prohibitions basically say the same thing with different words. Retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden to the followers of Jesus. He himself never hit back in either word or deed. And in spite of our inborn tendency to seek revenge, ranging from the child's tit-for-tat to the adult's more sophisticated determination to get even with an opponent, often in a passive-aggressive manner, we won't even be bold enough to say it face-to-face. We do it in a passive-aggressive manner. Jesus instead calls us to imitate Him. You see, the Christian journey, the tenets of our Christian pathway are never purely negative. However, each of Paul's four negative imperatives is is accompanied by a positive counterpart. Thus, we're not to curse, but to bless, verse 14. We're not to retaliate, but to do what is right and to live at peace, verses 17 and 18. We're not to take revenge, but to leave this to God, and meanwhile, to serve our enemies, verses 19 to 20. And we're not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Which brings me to my final point this morning. This fourth antithesis of good and evil, which is also a summary of Paul's argument and the climax of the chapter, is verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but be those who are overcoming evil with good. You see, a stark alternative is set before us, and there's no neutral ground. No middle way is envisaged. If we curse, verse 14, if we repay evil for evil, verse 17, if we take revenge, verse 19, then because all these are evil responses to evil, we have given in to evil. We've been sucked into its sphere of influence and we've been defeated, overcome, even overpowered by it, as J.B. Phillips translates it. But if we refuse to retaliate, we can then be proactive, taking the offensive. We can practice positive counterparts to revenge. And then, if we bless our persecutors, if we ensure that we ourselves are seen to be doing good, if we are active in peacemaking and peacekeeping, if we leave all of the judgment to God, And if we love and serve our enemy and even win him over to a better mind, verse 20, then in these ways, we have overcome evil with good. We're traveling the right path. So here's my challenge. In all of our thinking and living, It's important to keep the negative and the positive counterparts together. Both are good. It's never good to retaliate. Because if we repay evil for evil, we double the evil. We increase the tally of evil in the world. 
It's better to be positive, to bless, to do good, to seek peace, and to serve and convert our enemy, to repay good for evil, and thereby reduce the tally of evil in the world, while at the same time increasing the tally of good. You see, the pattern of behavior established by Jesus was regarded as foolish. It only took a week, five days, for the crowds to understand that. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, their shouts of praise, Hosanna, their cries for help or salvation, their desire for peace was not going to be fulfilled in the way they desired. You see, they wanted to curse Rome. They wanted to retaliate and seek revenge. They wanted to do evil to those who had done evil to them. And Jesus' entry to Jerusalem, the city that would crucify him by carnally minded people, was to show that salvation is only attainable by regeneration and renewal. To repay evil for evil is to be overcome by it. To turn the other cheek, to repay good for evil, is to overcome evil by doing good. This is the way of the cross. And in the words of an ancient commentator, Godet, he said, such is the masterpiece of love. And our commitment him today, our call to commitment this morning, issues a call for you and I to stand up to stand up for this foolish message of sacrificial love. Let's stand and pray, and then we'll sing. Father God, forgive us when we have sought the way of revenge, when we have pointed our haughty fingers and look down disparagingly at others with condemnation, not with agape love. Help us to once again see this message of Paul as guides for how we are to be living and traveling this paradise, or excuse me, this parade of our own life and lifestyle. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.